Boxcaster online. Authorization accepted. Upload confirmed. Begin transmission. I'm Jim Swallow, and you're listening to After Ulanor. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Transmission A-1 of After Ulanor. I am your host, David Witek. Um, as you can tell, this is already a bit of a different episode. Greg is not here with me at the moment, and um, there was no opening reading. Uh, last episode, we covered the Garo audio series, and... Um, we already covered Flight of the Eisenstein, and if you've read the title of this episode, um, we managed to land an interview with author James Swallow. Now, um, James is actually a you know well-known author, and there are a lot of demands on his time, and so we had a few scheduling snafus, and then when Greg managed to get in touch with him and they were ready to go, I was unable to be reached. So basically, uh, I'm just introing the show. Um, what's about to come up in just a few moments is Greg uh, speaking to James, and they're going to talk uh, about Black Library and uh, and Captain Garrow and uh, how he came to be writing the series. And uh, then that's going to be the show. Um, not much discussion, uh, book club style, as we usually do on the follow-up episode to the audiobooks. But, um, hey, you're going to be listening to James Swallow. I'd rather listen to him than me any day. So uh, here comes this, and then um, that'll be it. Once that's done, um, show's going to wrap. So thank you all for listening. Um, you know, uh, we will be back uh, soon with Legion. But until then, please enjoy this interview uh, with Greg Dan, my co-host, speaking to James Swallow. Enjoy. Hello. Well, well uh, joining me now is... The one and only Mr. James Swallow. Hello, sir. Hello, Greg. Nice to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, <clears throat> we've got you on mainly to talk about um, Flight of the Eisenstein and the Garrow audios, but obviously some other little bits as well. I, uh, I looked you up online. You've done quite a lot of stuff, haven't you? <laughs> well, I like to keep busy. Yeah, absolutely. The, the TV scripts and... You, uh, the, the the game connections and so, so you've been a busy boy. Well, you know, um, uh, a lot of writers tend to have like a day job, you know, to kind of cover their their their, their rent, <laughs> you know, and uh, and their mortgage and what have you. But not me. I, I quit my day job back in 1997, so I'm a full time working writer. So I, you know, I have to work every day, all day, pretty much six days a week, sure. you know, to to sort of like earn a decent wage, um, and. People say to me, like, oh, man, you know, you're political. I think, I'm not really. You know, I look around, I see other authors, uh, people who've done, like, 60 or 70 books, and yeah. I think that's what you call prolific. You know, there was a thriller writer I was just looking at a couple of days back, reading an article about her, Catherine Coulter, and she's had something like 60 New York Times bestsellers. Blimey. It's just unbelievable. I think, yeah, you know what, that's prolific. That's <laughs> that's what I've got to aim for, you know. I'm, I'm not quite there yet, but you never know. Excellent stuff. So, um... We'll cover the the basic bit. I'm sure you've done this a number of times, but 
what, how did you get into writing to start with? You mean from like the very beginning when I was a kid? Yeah, or, I mean, yeah, just a yeah, brief overview of, of where you got to. Kind of. I guess um, it was something that I was good at as a kid. You know, I mean, I, I just found I had a talent for it in English class at school, and it was something I liked. I mean, I'd already been somebody I read a lot. You know, I read uh, books, and I read comic books, and, you know, and I watched movies, and I went to w- watch TV and stuff like that, like anybody else did. But I was always interested in story and storytelling, and I, I guess I just found I had a talent for it. And I, and I didn't really realize it was something that you could, you know, you could do that for a living. Uh, and when I sort of found out that the career choices I wanted, like, you know, astronaut or international assassin, perhaps were a little bit more difficult than, uh, <laughs> than I thought, you know, I started thinking about, you know, other ways to kind of use my rich fantasy life to, in, in a way that might be useful for me. And um, I started off originally, uh, you know, I, I toyed with the idea of being a writer and I ended up drifting into being a journalist. And I worked for a bunch of entertainment magazines. Originally, I was writing fanzine stuff. And I got picked up from there to write professional stuff. And then off the back of that, I got my first opportunity to, to pitch into script writing, which was going and working on Star Trek Voyager. And then off of the back of that, the, the magazines I was working for, um, I had this one really, really bad year in my career where like four magazines I was working on all, all closed within like six oh, months God. of each other. And it was a sizable chunk of my wage packet that just went away overnight. And I've been thinking, oh, maybe I should write a novel. And then suddenly, instead of me sort of jumping i got pushed so i thought okay okay well this is this is a, the way to start earning money and um i pitched a series of original steampunk uh, young adult westerns which was the sundowners series and that was back in uh late 2000 i think and that was how i started uh, writing fiction and then from there it's just uh, it's just moved on and i've been able to do some really great time stuff and work on some titles and franchises that i was a fan of when i was younger and uh, you know and now I have the glittering career you see before you. Excellent stuff. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, I'm just looking down the list now. Star Trek, Doctor Who, Stargate, 2000 AD, Deus Ex. There's a, there's a bit of a geek kind of fanboy wish list there. <laughs> <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah, a just of, a little. For a lot. Excellent. So, from there, how did you first get involved with the Black Library? Well, funny story... Um, I was originally back in... I've always been a gamer, like a video gamer and a pencil and paper gamer. You know, I mean, I, I got into into gaming in the very, very early 1980s. And I was obviously there for, like, you know, first edition Raider um, 40K, and I played that a little bit, and I had a, an army of really, really badly painted plastic Space Marines. Remember the original plastic Space Marine yeah, box yeah. set? Brilliant stuff. Uh, I had that. And, uh, and I had to, I've still got some of the very early miniatures as well, the original uh, metal ones that they did back in the day. And so I played for a while, and I had a few friends, and a, a mate who played Eldar, and a friend of mine who played um, played Orcs, and we played for a while. But because I was such a terrible miniatures gamer, uh, and a well, terrible tactical player, and also a terrible painter, that's the worst thing about it, yeah. is I kind of drifted out of it, and I ended up getting more into pencil and paper role-playing, because that was kind of more my sort of speed with the sort of storytelling stuff. Sure. But I always kept like a weather eye on, on Games Workshop stuff. And my career had been ticking along, and all these years later, you know, I found out that... Uh, that there was the, the Black Library stuff and, and that um, I think Inferno magazine was still around at the time. And, uh, you know, and it was a, a good, viable market for, for writing. And, and at the time, and, and to be honest, it's still true now, there's not a lot of markets in the UK for somebody who wants to write science fiction and fantasy. And there certainly weren't any magazines, really, of a professional standard being put out at that time, you know, unless you wanted to go to the really highbrow kind of things, which is probably a, a little bit beyond my remit. I was more of a sort of pulp sci-fi guy. And... Uh, a writer I knew had done a story for Inferno, and uh, he, and he was like a guy who was he was a friend of a friend, 
Um, and he was telling me about this story, and he was being really dismissive about it. He was saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I wrote this story for Black Library. I did this thing. And he was kind of like, oh, it's just something I tossed off, you know. And I thought, that's not really very professional of you. You know, you, you, if you, and I thought, well, if they'll take a story from this guy and he's just phoning it in, I thought, I'm sure I could do better than that. And so I picked up a copy of Inferno and I looked through it and I thought, yeah, I remember this. You know, this, is, this all came back to me. And I, and I went back and I got out all my sort of 40K books and I thought, yeah, I remember this world quite well. I think I could maybe pitch for it. So... I came in and said, how about I do a story for you? And, and that was Crimson Knight, my first story for Inferno, which was a Doom Eagle story with the flesh terrors turning up. Oh, cool. And so I did a couple of stories. That was like my audition piece for, for Black Library. And they liked it so much, they said to me, you know, we want you to do a novel for us. What would you like? And we, you know, we would like you to write Space Marines. And they said, here's the list of all the stuff that's been done. And I said, well, why is nobody doing the Blood Angels? Because they're so cool. And, you know, why has nobody done a Blood Angels novel? And at the time, I think there was just the Blood Quest comics. That, that was it. That was the only time anybody would seriously tried to tackle the Blood Angels. And I said, look, I'd really like to try this. So I went away and I came back with two original story pitches. And I went, I, I kind of came up with opposite ends of the spectrum. I thought I came up with one story that was really big and crazy, which was about this, you know, the second coming of Sanguinius and this big civil war in the chapter and huge schisms and everything. And I thought, right, that's my huge big blockbuster. And I thought, I'm going to give them that at one end and I'll give them a smaller story, a more kind of compact story about a small group of Marines, which was going to be like a kind of Black Hawk Down type thing. And I thought, I'll just give them two options. And I thought, they'll go for the small story. And they went, no, 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 we want we want you to do massive mega epic and and in fact you know what don't make it one novel make it two awesome. and and that was uh Deus and Carmine and Deus Sanguinis and 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 away I went and uh and I've been you know I'm proud to say I've been lucky enough to to write the continue to write the Blood Angels and then be involved in doing Sisters of Battle stuff and Horus Heresy and uh and uh I'm not bored with it yet you know there's so much great stuff in in the Warhammer universes in the world of the Heresy and the 40k um, franchise, there's so many great stories to tell out there. I, I don't, I don't sit sit around and think, oh, it's really hard for me to come up with an idea. I'm just bursting with them, you know, because it's such a a rich universe full of really cool characters and amazing things. Yeah, from being at the weekenders and that, that kind of comes across from like all the authors. There's always something ticking in the back of each of their heads. <laughs> I've got a story there. I've got a story there. Oh yeah, it is. It, the, the, yeah, that that often happens. It's like. You know, if you see like a new codex and you'll read something, you'll go, oh, that's interesting. Oh, well, you know, here's a piece of artwork or and you'll see, and what's the story behind that? You know, how did that sequence happen? What's, you know, where did this weapon get its name? All those sort of little details. It's all really crunchy sort of material for us writers to just grab hold of and say, let's tell that story. You know, what's this guy's narrative? Because it's not like any other kind of tie-in world. You know, if you were writing, say... Let's say you're writing a Star Wars novel, right? You know, and someone says, right, okay, tell a story about, um, you know, set during the time of, like, the prequel trilogy. It's like, okay, well, you can tell a story about Obi-Wan Kenobi or Anakin Skywalker or something. And you've got those characters, and they have taken this predetermined arc through the franchise. There's only a certain kind of set of stories you could tell about them. But with Warhammer, Warhammer 40K and, and uh, Horus Heresy, with, the, with all of the worlds of Black Library, you don't have to worry about that so much. Although we do have main important characters... You have a much bigger palette to choose from, and you can create your own characters and drop them in there, and you can you know, tell different kinds of stories. And I think that, that breadth of narrative availability makes it really compelling to, to write up. Brilliant. Um, so 
you've, you've gone from that. It, we mentioned the Horus Heresy. We should move on to that at some point, <laughs> being a Horus Heresy cast. Um, when, we, when were you first approached with that? What, what was your, yeah, your first links with the heresy? Well, that was the, uh, I was there at the very first meeting, I'm proud to say. Awesome. Um, I, was, I, was at, uh, I was there pretty much day one. I can remember it very clearly. Um, Mark Gascoigne, who was editor at the time, and, and Lindsay Priestley, who now handles uh, a lot of the foreign language stuff, brought us in and said, uh, okay, this is what we're thinking about doing. You know, we, we want to tackle the Horus heresy. And Marco talked about how he wanted the designs of the books to look like the Penguin Classics novels, if you've ever seen them, where they have that sure, kind yeah. of black spine. Um, you know, and, and if you, you put those side by side by the Horus Heresy novels, and you can see the design is very similar. And we talked about this, um, you know, this really big idea. And it was like, you know, taking on the kind of, you know, the core uh, mythology of the, the Warhammer universe, the Warhammer 40,000 universe. And, uh, and I remember the funny thing was, is in, during that conversation, some people said, well, this may not be a success. You know, people may not actually want to read this. It may not actually go anywhere. We might actually only do like four or five books and then it will be done. And, and thinking back now, here we are, we're up to what, book 50 something? Uh, yeah, and, you know, 50, uh, so we, we must be up to 50 odd stories now, I'm sure. I haven't counted for a while. Um, and it's kind of funny thinking about that back then, but... I guess at that point we didn't really know. We didn't really have a, a sense of whether people would would want to take this on, and uh, and it, it's it's just weird looking back at it now, thinking about how different things were. But it's it's been terrific that everybody you know everybody who wrote it in, and everybody who continues to write it is enthused by the the depth and the breadth and the interesting stories you've got to tell in the Horus Heresy franchise. And I think everybody who reads it feels the same way, you know, because it's such a great story. Everyone knows how it ends, and everybody wants to know how it starts, and everybody wants to know all the little interesting bits in between those two points. And we as writers were really excited by the idea of getting, you know, what is the crown jewels of the Warhammer 40,000 world and being able to kind of say, we're going to present that story to you. And we're not just going to tell you the story that you think you know is that there'll be bits of that in there, but we'll tell you, you know, this is what really happened. You thought, you thought that this thing happened, but actually it was something else, or it happened this way and slightly differently from what you expected. And it's, it continues to be a challenge, but um, also, you know, a lot of fun to do. Yeah, I, it's certainly reading it. I do get that. I think a lot of us do. It's, those, it's, it's great reading the bits you know. It is brilliant, because you know they're coming up, but in and around that, all the... the the shocks and surprises that come just make those little bits we know taste that much sweeter. I mean, what we try to do as well is, is let's say there's an element coming up and we think, okay, you know, the Horus Heresy law says that this ca character X did thing. And so everybody goes, well, you know, when that happens, that's, that scene's going to be played out and probably everybody who's reading it, they have their own idea about how that scene will be played out. But then when we get there, what we try to do is say, well, imagine... You know, it, it's like you've got a camera focused on that one character and, and history has told you this one thing that's going on in that room. But then if you pull the camera back out, there's all this extra stuff happening around the outside that maybe wasn't captured in that sort of historical version of events. Or maybe, you know, that you thought the events that led up to this event were a certain set of things, but actually they played out in a completely different way. And so the, when that thing does happen, it has a totally different resonance. So you get what you're expecting, but you get it in an unexpected way. Sure. Yeah. You also, um, a lot of the books deal with the perspective to change those viewpoints as well. 
Definitely, yeah. You know, because history is always written by the victors, right? So if you if you go with the idea that what you know of in the 40k time period about the Horus Heresy is what was written, you know, thousands of years later, obviously it's not going to be 100% accurate. But what we're presenting in the Horus Heresy novels is if you were there on that day, this is what you would have seen. Not what they've written thousands of years later. This is actually what happened. Excellent. Um, so in that first meeting, did Flight of the Eisenstein, was that brought up then? I can remember um, the, the initial decision being that the first three guys out of the gate, it was going to be Dan Graham and Ben. Uh, I think I was there. Um, I think Gav Thorpe was there. Chris Goto was there. But Chris uh, eventually left Black Library and ended up not doing any of the books. Um, and I can't. Remember. I think I think we did that. Was, that was where the genesis of of Flight of the Eisenstein came from, because we knew that that story would have to be told, and it was one that really appealed to me. What I do remember the most about that meeting is saying, right then, right at the very beginning, nobody does Cygnus Prime but me. <laughs> Planting my flag on that. All those years, but that's the story I want to tell. You know, and it might be a while before we get there, but I basically put a fence around it and went, this is mine, <laughs> claiming it now before anybody else. Brilliant. Well, you, yeah, you've got to find your corner or something like that. Um, so working off flight, if we, if we move on to flight of the Eisenstein, sure. uh, you've obviously taken Garrow, who's a character who wasn't written by you. Yeah. Um, you, did you have much dealings with, um, it would have been Graham that introduced it, I think, in Full Scots? Well, the way we put it together was, um, Flight's a very different novel from the books, the first three books that precede it. You know, if you, if you read, you know, Horus Rising, then uh, Galaxy Flames, uh, Full Scots and Galaxy Flames, it's like, it's big, bigger, bigger. You know, each yeah. book builds on the one before, and I, I always talk about it being like, if you go to listen to an opera or you go to listen to classical music, sometimes they'll have the overture at the beginning, which is like kind of this version of what you're going to hear. And it is this sort of big, opening, majestic music. And I think those three books, that's like the overture for the Horus Heresy books. And so you get to the end of Galaxy of Flames and it's just, it's huge. And I'm reading that and I'm thinking, I can't top this. You know, I can't, I can't write something bigger than that because it's just going to get ridiculous. And so... In a way, I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, there was a lot of pressure on me because I had to change, I had to show that the heresy could change gears by doing a different kind of story. So when I discussed it with Mark Gascoigne, I said, look, what we're going to do with this is we're going to change the focus. We're going to go small with this. This is going to be one man's story. This is going to be about a guy uh, having this kind of road to Damascus experience. Is that he's going to be have everything that he loves and cares about taken away from him and be sent on this this journey. And when he comes out the other end, he has to be a changed man. And the great thing about Garrow as a character, and you can also say this about Loken as well, was another great viewpoint character, is that both of those guys, the story that happens to them personally is the story of the heresy in a larger scale you know it's about the loss of brotherhood and the betrayal and you know the about um you know dealing with brothers and fathers all of those kind of issues and all that stuff plays out on a personal level for nathaniel garrow and then you can take that and you can blow it up to the big size of of the whole horus heresy it's the same themes the big reflecting the small. And I always like that idea because I think you get, you connect immediately with big issues because the heresy is a huge thing. You know, it's a galaxy spanning war. I mean, how do you make that personal? How do you make it something that's relatable to ordinary people like you and me? Well, you make it a story that's personal to one guy. 
and so that was that was Garrow. And so we talked about that, and uh, you know, and so Garrow gets kind of like uh, you know brought on uh, as a sort of supporting character in the previous novels, and uh, and I picked up the the Horace Heresy art books, and there was some great artwork in there. It's uh, John Gravato, I think, did this fantastic painting, which is the one I still go back to every time, of Garrow sort of holding the sword in front of him with his with his armor and the you know the, the Aquila yeah. sort of coming up behind him. And that was my touchstone. I kept coming back, looking at that picture and thinking, this is that man's story, you know, trying to think, how do I get inside that guy's head? How do I tell his story against uh, the backdrop of the Horus Heresy? And it was a little awkward to begin with because uh, a lot of the key events that inform Garrow's character had already been told in uh, Galaxy in Flames from a different point of view because there's a lot of stuff happening and Garrow's in the room at that time. So I had to go back... And in the early kind of chapters of Flight of the Eisenstein, I had to retell some of those events, but from a different point of view. And that was a very interesting challenge to take on, you know, to have the same scene unfolding, but now you're seeing it from Nathaniel Garrow's eyes, you know, and now you're understanding it, what it means to him. And, uh, and I think when I was doing that, that was the point when I realized I had the kind of key for this character. You know, that was where I connected with him. I thought, okay, I know who this guy is. I know where he's going. I know what kind of story I want to tell. And once I got that, it was almost like, you know, he's kind of leaning over my shoulder going, this is the way I want you to tell my story. And, uh, and it flowed on from there. And when I finished um, writing Flight, you know, it was, a, it was a great experience, and I was really, really pleased with the way it came out. I think it's one of the best pieces of work I've done for the, for the Black Library, and I'm very, very proud of it. But I put that book down, and I was like, okay, well, we're done now. Here's Garrow. Um, and I was basically saying, anybody else want to use this guy? Go ahead. You know, he's right there. And I just literally left. It's almost like taking that piece and putting him on the board. There's Nathaniel Garrow. Anybody want to pick him up, move him around? Go ahead. And nobody did, which is the weird. He's like, everybody else was doing their own stuff. And it wasn't because nobody liked him or anything like that. It was just like, you know, well, we're all doing our own thing, and there's, nobody's got a place for him. And I didn't realize how popular he would become with the fan base. People kept were coming up to me saying, "This guy's so cool. Can we see more stories about Garrow?" And we honestly did not have a plan for him. I had a vague idea about how Garrow's story would end, but we're talking like what right at the end of the heresy, right in the yeah. in the siege of terror. You know, not nowhere near where he is at this point. And I figured, you know, oh yeah, when we get to the siege of terror, I'll do a story then about kind of you know, hey, did you ever wonder what happened to Garrow? Well, it was this, you know, and and that would be it. But people were saying, no, no, we want to see Garrow's story now. We want to see where he was. And so we went back and looked at it, and it was, it was kind of a, a perfect storm of events because for a while I had been pushing the guys at Black Library to do audio books because I'm a big fan of audio stuff. You know, you talked about the stuff that's on my resume. You take a look, there's a lot of audio, yeah, audio exactly. dramas and audio books because I like writing those. I think they're a really great way to tell a story. And I said, guys, you know, we should try this because this will be a good fit for, for the Warhammer franchise. Um, and it has turned out to be, and I'm very proud of that. And so I was talking about doing that, and people were saying, can we see more Garrow stories? And so the, the idea just seemed like a natural fit. Let's do an audio story with Garrow. Let's bring this guy back on the board. Let's tell some more stories about him. And so that eventually evolved into what would become Oath of Moment. And again, it did really well. It was very successful. And so... Uh, just, I guess, because of because of the way his character have evolved, and and the way that people enjoyed reading about him, Garrow became almost like the torchbearer for the Horus Heresy audio line, and now he almost has like his own kind of mini series, you know, sort of 
charting his way through the Horus Heresy events. And once we started doing that, we went back to the character and said, okay, well, if we're going to show more of his story, we need to work out how it's gonna, where it's going to meet and, and diverge from, from the main big plotline of the Horus Heresy. And so we've been working those kind of things out. And now I have, um, I've worked out a full timeline for Nathaniel Garrow that basically goes from Flight of the Eisenstein all the way through to past the Siege of Terror. And we have a, we have a kind of idea about where he's going to go and what he's going to do and how his story arc is going to play out. And I'm really looking forward to telling those stories as, as, uh, as we go on. That's pretty awesome news. That's, that's the kind of thing we love to hear as readers, that it's set up, it's, it's ready to go as and when. That's it's almost like, it's, uh, I was talking to Laurie Golding actually uh, a couple of days back because we've just, um, we've just finished up work on the, the script for what will be the next Garrow audio, which is Shield of Lies, which is going to be coming out. I think we're going to get some advanced previews out for the end of the year and then it's coming out January 2015, I think. Okay. And so we were saying, like, you know, okay, this is almost like if we think of the Garrow series as like its own thing, it's like, okay, we're doing, we've got to the end of like season one. Are we going to do like what's going to be season two of Garrow? You know, where's he going to go? What's he going to do? Yeah, I think um, we covered a lot of those points when we did uh, the flight review, particularly is Garrow, particularly even more than Loken, because um, he embodies that heresy because it was thrust upon him. Loken saw it coming although he didn't see it coming he he could see the effects that were happening whereas Garrow was thrown into this circumstance yeah yeah you're right i think you you're very it's a very good point you make there i think loken in a way has a little bit more power and control over his life because like you say loken sees it coming and he gets to make an informed decision okay this is what i'm going to do this is the direction i'm going to take but like you say for garrow it comes out, it comes completely out of left field for him and he's like you know, he has a really hard time dealing with it because, to begin with, he can't he can't get his head around it. And it's only, you know, the the fact that he's this straight arrow character that he's this this guy who has this very strong kind of core, this this strength of character. That's what saves him. And in a way, Eisenstein is a story about a guy who loses faith and finds it again. You know, because he's got his faith in his brothers and his in his you know his Primarch and his unit. And all of that is taken away from him. And so through the story, he's kind of flailing, and he's like, I don't know where I'm going to go, well, where's, where's, what's going on, well, what's the direction I've got to take now? And, and by the end of the story, he realizes that his fake emperor is the only thing he really still has left, that and his kind of honor. And so by the end of the novel, he's, he's found a new faith for himself, a new thing for him to kind of put himself to, and, that's how, and, and so he grows into the, the knight-errant character from there. Yeah, definitely, his, his, um, that kind of solidity in that although every, the world's falling apart, I say his family's falling apart, he knows he's still in the right. And I think that's what a lot of people love about him. Um, funnily enough, we had a few people saying they're not a massive fan of Garrow from the audios. And I'm, I'm, I do wonder if that actually puts them off. It's always going to happen. But maybe kind of those people don't like that too straight-laced. Well, you know, the thing is... is, is He's not like he's not a hundred percent sort of straight laced. I mean, he has his doubts definitely. Yes. I mean, uh, in fact, um, when um, Shield Elias comes out, you're going to see some of that True. of Garrow questioning what's going on and and you know saying to himself, "Am I doing the right thing? Is 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 this? Am I on the right path here?" 
you know, he's never going to say, oh, actually, I was wrong. I should go back and join the Death Guard and, you know, hail Nurgle and all that kind of stuff. He's never going to do that. You know, he's always going to be the loyal soldier because that's that's baked into him. That's, you know, he's he's that 100% through and through. But the difficulty he's having is, is dealing with all the things that he's seeing around him, you know, kind of the the collapse of, of reason and, and all these kind of strange, crazy, demonic things, which he just has nothing to... He's got he's got no map for this, right? You know, he doesn't know where any of this stuff is coming from, and he's finding it very hard to deal with it. And and that, you know, against the the, the rigid nature of his character, you know, sometimes rigid characters, those are the guys who are the most brittle because they, they don't have any bend. You know, those are the guys who can snap under pressure. And I think there's a little bit of that tension going on with Garrow, is that he, he's like, well, this is who I am, and I'm, you know, I'm going to go straight down the line, and I'm going to be, you know, honourable in every single thing I do and then he's put into circumstances where he can't do that he can't be that guy and he has to start making compromises or he sees compromises taking place around him and he's asking himself how do I fit in with this and to me that's that makes great story because what you do with you know you get a character you put them in a situation that's pulling them in the opposite direction and that's drama right there yeah definitely and I think the the majority of our listeners have felt that way about him Um, and I think we see that um, when he meets Dawn the first time, there's a few real kind of sparking moments where that starts to edge through, but he he becomes stronger for it. Where he yeah, I did enjoy, I did enjoy doing that. That's that's one of my favourite scenes. Is is where you know he uh, he kind of loses his temper a little bit there, and he's like, no, you know, you guys stop screwing around with me. And Dawn turns up and says, easy man, calm down. <laughs> and then that was fun to do, and it was a lot of fun to to write the the scene in Burden of Duty, which takes place, you know a while afterwards, where you have um, Dawn saying to Garrow, you know, what's going on here? Because, you know, you talk about someone who's a straight arrow, that's Dawn, right? I mean, he's, yeah. he, is the, he is the, you know, the, the fundamental embodiment of that kind of character trait. He's more straight arrow than Garrow is. Oh, big time. And so having those two guys on either sides of an argument Again, it makes for a very interesting, dramatic situation. And um, and I really loved the way it was like Ramon Tickerham who played him in the audio and, 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 of course, the brilliant Toby Longworth who does such a great job with Garrow. The two of them just doing that scene is just electric, you know, and it really, really, you know, made me, gave me a big smile when I heard it, you know. In fact, I have to say, I've got to put a shout out to Toby Longworth because I, I think that he's been, um, in his way, been very, very, very instrumental in, in shaping the character of Nathaniel Garrow as well. Because, you know, I've worked with Toby on a bunch of stuff beforehand, and when we were doing these audios, I said, this is the guy we want to get to play Garrow, because he can, he can pick up the character and he'll know exactly what to do with it. And he's done a really great job breathing life into this guy, and now, whenever I'm writing, it's Toby's voice I hear in my head. Yeah. And I feel like, in a way, you know, you've got... If you think of the people who were responsible for creating this character, I mean, you've got, like, I think it's Alan Merritt who originally created the character in the Horse Heresy backstory, and then there's John Gravato's artwork, and there's Toby who kind of breathed life into him and, and gave, him, gave him a voice, and then there's me who wrote him. And I think all of us, in a way, we're all the fathers of that character, and I'm really proud to have been part of creating that and bringing him to life. Excellent. Yeah, I think Toby Longworth's brought a lot to the whole series, and it's that he's that benchmark I mean we heard the voice and it was right and it felt right 
It's funny when we when we were doing the very first recordings, I, I took the the Heresy art book to the recording studio and I sat Toby down. I said, "This is the guy. This is who you're playing. This is what he looks like." And Toby's pouring over the picture, and I could see he's looking at him, thinking, "How do I get into his head? You know, who is this man? Where does he come from?" And he said to me, "Well, what's he like? You know, tell me who he is." And I said, "Well, he's officer class. You know, he's not like a he's he's an educated man." So, you know, not sort of uh, like your Sandhurst educated kind of officer guy, but, but maybe, you know, not a common, common sort of soldier made good. Yeah. And he said to me, oh, yeah, he said, uh, he said, so like uh, Lawrence of Arabia. That was the first thing he said. He said, like, Lawrence of Arabia, is that, that, that's the kind of character he had in mind. He said, like, you know, Peter O'Toole in Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. He said, that's where, that's, the, that's the, the place he started at as an actor for the character. And it's funny to hear him do that voice because you can hear a little bit of that in Garrow when he does his performance of him. Cool. <laughs> that must be really great to see that just kind of coming alive in the in the studio. Yeah, it really is. You know, I mean, there are some writers who don't like to be there when people are performing their stuff, you know, because they're like, oh, it's not how I heard it in my head. It's not right. It's not right. And early on in my career, I had that kind of happen to me. And then I realized that what you have to do is just embrace it. Trust the actors and the producers and the sound guys to do the very best they can, you know. And um, and I'm really lucky. We've worked with some very very talented people, you know, people at Big Fish and Heavy Entertainment, and uh, and then and now you know Black Library Studios as well. Just you know, a lot of really talented people putting a lot of effort in, and it and it really you know it never fails to to just make me happy when I when I listen to a, a finished version of an audio and it comes to life, and I forget I forget it's a thing I've helped create. You know, I just sit back and absorb it, and it, I love it. it. Really is cool. Um, when you're writing the audios, uh, how many of the the sound effects and stuff do you uh, as write much of that in to the scripts? I mean, I, yeah, I yeah. I mean, uh, it, it depends. Writers. I mean, I, uh, with a sound designer, you know, you you don't want to less is more. You know, you don't want to kind of do pages and pages and say, well, it needs to sound exactly like this, and this needs to happen here, and this needs to happen there. You know, you, again, it, it's about trusting the sound engineer to do it right. So, you might say, like, you know. In this sequence, only you know a, 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 a drop pod is launching, or you know um, you know we've got a, a guy's firing a bolt gun, or you know multi lasers are shooting past in the background, and and uh, you've got to trust them to to know how to do that sort of stuff. And sometimes, you know, if a, if a sound effect is very important, I'll maybe put a little bit more detail in it. But then other times, I'll just kind of uh, you know I'll just sketch it. In. There's there's a there's actually a line in the um, in the script for Shield of Lies, where I was describing Garrow um, destroying, uh, you know, the Thalaxi, the yeah. mechanoids. He has, a, he has a fight with a couple of those. Uh, and I describe him destroying this Thalaxi, and, and the, the special effects description was Garrow curb stomps it. Because <laughs> I was like, they'll know what to do. They, they know what I mean, you know. Sure. Um, and I'm sure they'll do it well. That's uh, that's brought an image to my head. I'm collecting. I'm collecting <laughs> yeah, crunch. The there you go. <laughs> yeah, see, you can hear it, can't you? As yeah, I described that, you can hear what yeah. kind of noise that's going to make. That poor Thalax. Um, <laughs> excellent. Um, we, you talked about Dawn there for a bit. Um, I'm kind of well known among the people I talked to that, that Dawn is a dick, um, but he's a very <laughs> he's a very well written dick. In that he has to be, and he has to be the the character that he is. Um, how, how do you find approaching the Primarchs when you're writing them? Well, you know, it's, it, 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 there's no kind of one-size-fits-all solution for writing the Primarchs because they're all so different. Mm. Um, certainly, writing Dawn, 
Yeah, he he does have a bit of that dickish nature to him. But like you say, you know, it, it's that's who his character is. I mean, he is this straight up and down guy. He is this, you know, stone faced stone man, and and he's very sort of controlled, and he has to have this this sort of outward appearance of, of control and sort of command that he projects at all times. And so telling that telling a story with that kind of guy in it, you know, you know, how do you how do you make him interesting? How do you make him more than just like a one note character? That's always the challenge with these guys. Uh, and with Dawn I guess I've always felt that the thing about Dawn is is Dawn really Dawn believes he is emotionally controlled. He believes he's got it all under wraps, but I think the truth is is deep down inside he really hasn't. Well no, I think Garrow found that out. Yeah. And and time. so and so that's the fundamental you know, every character every and true it's true of real people as well. Everybody lies to themselves about something. And I think the thing that Dawn lies to himself about is I am in control. And he's not always in control. And that's and so and again you get the dynamic tension. You get elements of a character that are pulling in two different directions. And that's what makes him compelling to write. Yeah, that's an, that's an excellent way to describe him, actually. That kind of changes the way you view his character. Yeah, because imagine, you know, in every scene, that's bubbling away in the background. Even if you don't see it coming up to the surface, it's pulling on everything that he does and every decision that he makes. Yeah, definitely. But he's, he's in that place he needs to be. Um, yeah. And, and the heresy wouldn't, would, would have a very different path if it wasn't him there. Yeah, definitely. Excellent stuff. So, I mean, Garrow's had a number of audio. You, you talked about that scene with Dawn on the on um, on the phalanx, yeah, you know, on the phalanx, and that that is brilliant. That is almost Garrow's crowning moment for me. <laughs> Thank because you. He's warned again. You know, I'm going to kill you. I've I've almost done it once, and he just like, no, I've I've got my new job, and I know what I'm doing, and I know it's right. Even though he's actually got doubts, a little bit of doubt in there. Well, that's the thing about Gareth, see, is that, you know, I mean, he's, you know, you could look at that and say, well, this guy's fearless. Well, he's not really, you know, he, he you know, he, he does, he, he, he would be a fool to think that, you know, that there aren't things out there to be afraid of and there are, you know, there aren't doubts to be had, but he knows, but he has his duty and like all good soldiers, you know, his duty is the thing that he has to, he has to stay true to. And, and, and again, you know, the tension comes in when, when the, Duty pulls him direction, and his morals and his his own thoughts pull him in the other direction. And it's the it's the dilemma that you've seen, you know, hundreds of times over from from time immemorial when everybody has everybody written about a story about a soldier. Is that's always the issue that's at hand? Is is that you know your personal feelings against the duty that the state gives to you? And and Garrow is very much in that situation. Yeah, and and he's also dealing with um, not being hundred percent sure of his role. Um, Obviously, Malkador has these plans, but uh, so far yet we don't really know where that's going in the books. Um, I mean, you can draw lines and things like that. I say we don't really spoil too much on our podcast, but he, he's you know sent out to collect this crack team of warriors, um, but the end goal's not really enlightened yet. Yeah, and that's kind of like that's where it starts. That's that's the sort of the initial job he's given, but as time passes by that job starts to change. He gets, you know, you hear people talk about mission creep, you know, and 
he definitely get uh, some of that, you know, because it's starting off, well, I want you to go out there and I want you to re- recruit this bunch of guys and do this for me. And so Gary goes, okay, this is the job. Oh, and while you're there, could you do this thing? And, and could you do this thing for me as well? And before Gary knows it, he's, he's basically become Malkador's black ops guy. And, and that is essentially, you know, what the knight errant are, is that you think about Malkador, you know, I mean, he's, you know, he's second smartest guy in the Imperium after the Emperor. You know, he's got his hands in everything. He's got, like, you know, wheels turning within wheels. Scheme, his plans have plans, right? And, and so, obviously, he's got people, he's got agents all around the galaxy doing his bidding. But he also needs people who can be proactive, and, of course, he sees Garrow, and he thinks, this is a guy I could use, because, you know, he, he understands, to be honest, how to manipulate him. <laughs> and he also understands, you know, he knows how to get Garrow to do what he wants him to do. But he also knows that Garrow's loyal, and that he's not going to, you know, he's not going to stab him in the back. So he's like, this is a guy I could use. This guy will be useful to me, and, and ultimately useful to the Imperium. But at the same time, bubbling away in the background, there is definitely the certainty that, you know, if push came to shove, Malkador would sacrifice Garrow in a heartbeat. If, if it meant if if it was for the greater good, and maybe Garrow even knows that on some level, you know, and, and that's an interesting situation to have these characters in. Absolutely, yeah. This group he's pulling together. I mean, you've got a nice mix there. But how hard was the um, Loken story to write? Well, the thing about Loken was, um, you know, Dan dropped a building on him, and uh, and everybody was like, well, that's the end of Loken. And um, we never said it was. In fact, Dan was very clear about saying, you know, Loken's not dead. He said he said it a few times in interviews. People asked him directly, oh, "Is Loken dead?" And Dan was like, you know, very very vague about it. Yeah, it was left very open. Yeah, and so and anyone who's uh, watched a movie and was waiting for the trailer knows that unless you see the, <laughs> unless you see the character's head rolling across the, across the yeah, floor. you know, yeah, and you know, it's it's like. You know, he has to be pretty much Hollywood dead, and he wasn't. You know, he had a building dropped on him. So, um, I went to Dan and I said, "Look, you know, what's you know?" And everybody had been saying, you know, all the audience and the fans had been saying, "So, when's Loken coming? Is he dead or is he coming back?" And most people, or at least it seemed to me, most people in the audience seemed to think, "Oh, he's dead. He's not coming back." And and so it still amuses me when some people go, well, "Why did he come back? He's dead." And it's like, "No, we never said he was." And so I said to Dan, when are you going to bring him back? And he's like, well, we, we haven't got a decision. I said, well, I've got this idea about this, this story about having Garrow go and get him. And when he goes, and, and so this is the story that eventually became Legion of One. Is he goes to get him, and he's gone completely off his rocker. And so, you know, not only is, you know, Loken is still alive, but he's gone crazy, and Garrow has to basically, you know, go find him and say, come back to the light, come back to the sanity and... You know, come with me. I can offer you a purpose because that—that's what was offered to Garrow. You know, he was—he was kind of lost, and he got offered a purpose. Yeah. And it's the same thing that happened. You see, it happened to Rubio in Oath of Moment as well, and you see it happening over and over again. Same thing. You know, these kind of lost souls, and it's Malkador and it's Garrow and the Knights Errant saying, "Here is a here is a purpose against the backdrop of the the Horus Heresy. Everything you know has been taken from you, but here is something. Here is a guiding light." that you can come to and you can have meaning in your life as opposed to just been flailing around going, I don't understand what's going on in my world. Everything I knew has been taken away from me. And so I put this all down for Dan and I said, here's my story idea and I pushed it out to him and Dan said, yep, I'm perfectly happy with that. Go ahead. Bring him back. Put him back on the board. And, and so that was that and, and that's how it went. And, uh, and so when Loken comes back, 
if you you know and if you've read uh vengeful spirit you know you see this kind of playing out there and also in uh, uh the story luna mendax which um uh, graham did which is a great little piece of writing about Loken. Is you see that he's not the Loken that we knew from the earlier books he's he, yeah. You know, he's damaged, definitely. Yeah. And he's still trying to figure out who he is and, and where his place is. And even within that, um, Rubio is going through that journey. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and we talked about, actually, that Garrow probably manipulated Rubio a little bit um, to, to get him to that position. But oh, totally he did, yeah. You know, in fact, you know, he's, he's, uh, it shows he's, like, he's learning lessons from Alcador. Yeah. And I think, I think deep down inside, I think Garrow feels bad about it. Definitely. I don't think I don't think Malkador would feel bad about manipulating Garrow, but I think Garrow definitely feels bad about manipulating Rubio, and he knows again it's the whole sort of like this is for the greater good, yeah. and you know. But at the end of both the moment, he basically, you know, kind of railroads Rubio into giving up everything that's you know he he makes Rubio make the same choice that was forced on him, yeah. which is pretty unfair when you step back and look at it, but you know it's for the greater good. And Garrow's like saying, "This is, you know, this is more important than than you and your brotherhood. This is about us. This is about survival of the Imperium, about everything that's important to us. So, if I have to do this thing that maybe I find distasteful, I'll do it. But it doesn't mean that he's kind of like, oh, I'm done with it. I'm I'm moving on now. No, he's carrying that around with him now. You know, he's carrying around that little kind of black mark on his own personal logbook of." The, you know, you know he's uh, what the Red Ledger, like you know Black sure. Widow talks about in the Avengers movie. You know that's 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 something on the in the red column for um, for Nathaniel Garrow. He feels like he did a bad thing there, but for a good reason. Definitely. Well, um, I think we'll start to wrap this up. We've uh, taken up quite a lot of your time. No, 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 no happy to do this. You've um, you've mentioned we've got the story coming out uh, start of next year, the next audio for Garrow. Yeah, um, and you've got that whole everything plotted out nicely, which I'm sure we'll have some revisions as you go through and find cool little bits to put in. Um, have we got? Are we, are we uh, looking at a James Swallow um, novel to add into the Heresy soon? Well, we've been talking about a lot of things that we could possibly do with the Gara stuff. I mean, the a lot that you, know, you mentioned earlier. There's some people who don't really like you know like the audio stuff and have said, "Well, we want to see a Garrow. Can't we have this as a prose thing?" And so we've done the. Um, the scripts but one thing we have been talking about for a while it's probably not going to happen soon but you know prob- it's probably going to happen sooner rather than later but not very soon sure. is the idea of doing a Garrow novel and what that would be is that we would take the audio stories and do like an adaptation of those novelize them essentially and add some new story and find a way to kind of string these stories together so it kind of would hang together in a, in a novel format rather than just kind of being episodic. Excellent. And that's something um, off off in the future, you know. We've also talked about um, other Garrow Pro stuff. We talked about doing, like, maybe a novella. That's another possibility that's out there. That would go down well. <laughs> um, and, and, um, and obviously more audio stories. And, uh, you know, and in, in terms of the, the ideas that I have, you know, I, I, ha- I have already plotted out the last Garrow story. I already have that in my head. I've already worked out uh, as a 60-minute a, a, a single-disc audio story that takes place during the Siege of Terror that will be, this is the final Garrow tale. And I thought, you know, I mean, <laughs> we're not there yet. It's going to be a way, way off before we get there. But, um, you know, I thought I, I, I did that for myself so I can say, okay, this is how 
these, this story will be brought to a conclusion. This is what's going to happen at the end. And it's going to tie in with a lot of cool elements. You know, there's, there's a lot of material about, um, you know, uh, a certain group, shall we say, that Malkador is instrumental in putting together yes. and how Garrow gets connected to that group. And people have said, well, obviously Garrow is like, you know, the very first Inquisitor and he's not really, you know, but, but you can see some of the seeds of the idea of the Inquisition being laid in in the way that the Knights Errant yeah, it's, work. It's, and then because, uh, you know... Because the guys are wearing like grey armor and you know and they're and they're nicknamed the knights, people are going, Oh, grey, knights? Hmm. Maybe that's something. It's like, well, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. You know, there's some there's some connections to some of that stuff, but obviously, you know, if you read the the backstory about the grey knights, they don't really come into their own until the heresy is over. But what we're seeing are elements of those bits of story that will play out later on. But this is kind of laying the groundwork for those. And all these things are all cross-connecting, you know. It's not like Garrow's story is the story of the formation of the Grey Knights or the formation of the Inquisition or anything like that. What it is, is it's Garrow's story is Garrow's story, but it will cross-connect with a lot of different elements of the Horus Heresy, some of which the audience knows about and some of which they don't. And hopefully it won't play out in the way that you expect it to. It very rarely does, which is, um, which is great to be fair it's it's quite interesting reading a lot of the forums how many people have tried to kind of force on everyone else that garrow must be a latent psyker to make him fit their ideas of how things move forwards with okay the, uh, all right i'm going to call this right now he's not a psyker oh, i think most right, um, but, that, but i'm this I'm, I'm laying the law down now right this is official word of god okay. garrow is not a psyker i'm going to save this forever so there you go. Just, That's, if anybody asks, you can just say, Jim told me he's not psychic. Just, just unless, unless, of course, somebody comes along after me and completely retcons it. Well, that could happen. But. Yeah. yeah, I can play that to people rather than <laughs> answer the question. But, yeah, there's certainly, um, that, yeah, we, we can see elements growing that. And, and as, as we said, yeah, the heresy very rarely has proceeded how we think it will proceed, even though we know those, those nodes that appear during the heresy. Yeah, that's very much the the way we approach it. Is that you know there's there's those as you say these these kind of nodal points of of, of narrative. It's like okay, well you know what happened at Ulanor, and you know what happened at Cygnus Prime, and you know what happened at Prospero, and all, and, and these sort of different places. All this is stuff that's been established in the in the background lore of the game for a long time. But you don't know how we got from there to there, and who knows what stuff was going on in the meantime. You know there are, there are characters and factions that. Just basically, if you read the background, they go completely missing. It's like, well, what were the White Scars doing while this was going on? What was you know, this faction doing? What were the Alpha Legion doing while that was happening? These guys weren't just sitting on their hands. You know, there's, there's tons and tons of crazy stuff that's going on all, all at the same time. Bits of story that you never saw that we're going to slowly and surely unfold and say, well, you know, you weren't wondered about this thing. This is what was going on over there. And you wondered about this thing. This is what was going on over here. And incrementally... We're going to just like step by step. We're going to get closer and closer to the the um, the siege of terror. And then you know, one minute you're going to be reading these books, next minute you're going to look up and go, "Oh my God, we're here!" <laughs> and it's all good. and you know, and it's going to be the 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 worst weekend you've ever had when <laughs> the siege of terror comes down. You know, and I, I I wonder what's going to happen when we get there as well. I think we have to kind of get all the writers together and have a big fight over who gets to do the last couple of novels. Yeah, I think every every reader's got their own opinion how that should work. But <laughs> yeah, I mean we're we're a good way off. Yeah, I mean it's you know the perennial question I always get is people say how many books are there going to be, and you know from the very beginning how many books, how many books, yeah. 
And, and I always say to people when they ask me, I say, well, how many do you think it's going to be? And I've heard lots and lots of different numbers. My favorite one was the guy who said it's 666 books long. <laughs> and I laughed. But um, I mean, at the, at the Horace Heresy weekend, they took steps to kind of say, look, we're you know, a third of the way through the heresy. But that doesn't mean we're a third of the books through the heresy. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's still lots of stories to be told. I mean, like I said uh, earlier on, I think it's like we, we, we're up to about, if you, if you, count, if you count in uh, like the anthologies and the audios, but maybe not the individual stories, if you count in, like, say, the novellas, I think we've got like 50-odd individual stories. Yeah. That's, quite a, that's quite a lot. And I look at the heresy and I think, well, to me, it feels like we're only kind of halfway through. Oh yeah, if and that's just and that's just my opinion. You know, I mean, that's just me. That's yeah. not like kind of an official word from BL or anything. That's just me saying, me looking at it as a writer and a reader, thinking, well, it feels like we're here. Yeah. So I would not be surprised if we tell this many more stories again. Absolutely, because because there's enough out that you know. I mean, we could if we really wanted to, we could cut to the chase and go, okay, let's just stick to the sweet path, and we'll go, you know, and we'll, we'll wrap this up in five or ten more books. We could we could totally do that if we wanted to, but then. There are so many great stories out there that would just go by the wayside. I mean, I, there was a, a guy talking to me online a little while back, and he said, well, why don't you just end the heresy? Like, you know, do the main storyline, go to the, the, the Siege of Terror, finish it all off, and then, and then start backfilling it, you know, <laughs> start telling, like, all the other stories that happened around those stories. And I thought, well, that's, that's one way of doing it, but to me that wouldn't feel as organic, because I think if we did that, we would miss the opportunity to really grow the whole franchise because one thing that's been really great about doing this is every book we do kind of builds on every other book and we have these regular meetings you know where we get together with all different writers and you know some of us are there on Skype some of us just talk on email but you know we, we try to make sure that everybody's kind of in the loop and there's a real sense of I think team that goes behind these books like in a small way all of us have a bit of ownership over the other guy's books because we're all there for each other saying like, you know, okay, I'm doing a book about this. What do you think? Oh, maybe it would be cool if you put this in. Or, hey, could you put a reference into my thing I'm going to do three books down the line? And so we're all contributing to create this larger tapestry of what the Horus Heresy will be. And the great thing about that is, is that when we are eventually done, you'll be able to go right the way back to Horus Rising and start reading again. And you'll have a completely different experience because you'll see things that we set down bits that may, you know, at the time have not meant much. You look back at it and go, oh my God, that reference in the very first book to this thing plays out right at the very end of the story, you know, because we're trying to make something that has all of those connections that will eventually reward you as a reader if you stick with us for the whole journey. Excellent. Um Brilliant stuff. Uh, do you want to just give a, an idea on the other projects you've got going on at the moment? Well, in terms of, like I say, in terms of um, uh, Black Library stuff. Oh no, just anything. Okay. Know, well, let's see. Right now, well, there's. Um, I'm I'm just putting together some notes on another Black Library project, which I can't quite talk about yet, but it's going to be another audio thing, possibly coming out around about Christmas time. So keep your eyes open for that. Um, the next Heresy release. Well, the next release for me is going to be, as I say, um, Sword of Truth, which is um, it's a, it's it's carrying on uh, Gary's adventures. Not Sword of Truth. That one's out already. Uh, sorry, what am I saying? Sorry, yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Shield of Lies. Shield of Lies. Yeah, we've seen the, um, oh, the yeah, Lies, cover is, for that. Yeah, so so Shield of Lies is is, um, is carrying along uh, Gary's adventures, and that is 
Uh, I can't. I can't remember now if that was a two disc or a, I think it might be a two disc release. Excellent stuff. And and that's going to have some interesting things going on there. Just got the cover artwork out for that. Yeah. Um, again, Neil Roberts done a really great um, piece of work there with you know Gara in the middle of this gun battle with uh, with a group of Thalaxi. And there's a, a female character standing next to him, and immediately everybody was saying, "Oh my God, it's it's Keeler, it's the Saint yes. Keeler." And I was laughing because it's not. It's not Keeler. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there you go. I'm telling people that it's not Keeler. It's somebody else. Excellent. But that doesn't mean to say that um, Keeler isn't going to be playing an important role in stories coming up. Uh, and then beyond that, not much else I can talk about really. Like like I said, we've got a few other projects um, that we're discussing. But right now, uh, no ink on paper. I'd definitely like to come back and do some more. It's, it's been a while since I've done some 40K stuff. I'd like to come back and do more Blood Angels. Sure. I have some cool ideas about that. Uh, um, and I would like to do another Sisters of Battle book at some point because I have an idea for a third Sisters of Battle book. And I think that would be fun. Uh, beyond the Warhammer franchise, just had a new novel come out this week, which is a tie-in to the television series 24. Uh, and that's called Deadline. And that's just come out in the U.S. from Forge Books and here in the U.K. from uh, Titan. Uh, I had a great time doing that. I had to write under a very compacted timeline. Very, very short deadline on that. So in a way, I was kind of channeling Jack Bauer because I was running against the clock to finish the book. But that was, uh, you didn't kill that was a lot of fun. To do it. Say again? You didn't kill any terrorists or scream, where's the bomb? Well, I'm, I might have, you know. Oh, who are you working for? Fair play. Pointing my gun at people, you know, like. Download that to my PDA. That pretty much happened here. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Damn it, Chloe. <laughs> it's funny because the public relations girl I'm working with at Titan, her name is Chloe. So I'm like, Damn it, Chloe. She's like, I've got another interview for you, Jim. Damn it, Chloe. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, that, so that's pretty cool. And then I'm, I'm working on a, a, a Star Trek project, which is a novel for the Star Trek Titan series called Sight Unseen. And that's going to be coming out next year. Uh, and uh, the project that has been really kicking my ass all through this month is a video games project that I'm doing, which is awesomely cool, but I am not allowed to talk about it. We, we shall have to uh, find it's, the details. It's such a shame, let me tell you. I've been working on this thing since the beginning of the year, and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this thing. <laughs> and I really want to tell everybody about it. And my friends are like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm doing this thing. Is it cool? Yeah, it's super cool. It's a, <laughs> it's a franchise I've never worked in before. Um, and it's something I'm a big fan of. And, and it's just a, it's an absolute lot of fun. And that's hopefully going to be announced probably towards the end of the year. So when that comes around, I'll be, I'll be telling everybody about it. Brilliant. And are we going to see you at the Black Library Weekender? You are definitely going to see me at Black Library Weekender, absolutely. Um, and I'm also going to be at Warhammer Fest too. Oh, right, yes, I forgot. I'm going to oh, yeah, there is another, there is, you just reminded me, there is another release coming out. There's, the, there's a special analogy coming out, um, Death of Defiance, which is going to be a Horse Heresy anthology. That is coming out for... Um, for the weekend of, of Warhammer Fest and I think it's five different stories and all five of the writers are going to be there and the story I've done is called Gunsight and it is going to tie back into one of my previous Horus Heresy novels and I won't say more than that Ooh. yeah okay that's got cogs whirling in my head <laughs> brilliant stuff uh, so thank you very much for joining us uh, oh, absolutely. My pleasure. No, uh, and we'll uh, hopefully talk to you again at some point. Cool. Congratulations on completing another episode of After Eleanor. David and Greg would love you to come and chat some more about the Horus Heresy in the forums at garagehammer.net slash forum or on the Facebook page. Just search for After Eleanor. 
You can email us if you wish at greg at garagehammer.net or david at garagehammer.net. Finally, you can catch us on Twitter at After Eleanor, at Child of Fang for Greg and at garagehammer for David. If you'd like to support the show, you can visit the support page on the main website at garagehammer.net and you can leave a positive review on iTunes. In addition, you can tell all your friends to come and join the community. Many thanks for listening and until the next episode, may the Emperor protect you.